Michael Shermer, I've always felt sorry for skeptics. You, you feel sorry for skeptics? I feel sorry for skeptics. <laughs> and it's because when I've gone to spring fairs and cultural events, and there's a booth of people reading tarot cards. Oh. <laughs> and right next to it, there's a booth of people with the Skeptic Society. <laughs> Guess which booth people are at? Yes. I'm afraid that's built into what we do, unfortunately. Uh, we are in the minority, in the general population. But in fact, you know, we do live in an age of science and technology. And everybody knows that science is, is really the way to go. They happily use their iPhones and they fly at 35,000 feet and feel safe. They drive cars and, and whatnot and go to doctors. It's just that in some of these areas that are closely aligned with religion and spirituality and the afterlife and, you know, and so on, there is still an appeal to you know, the supernatural and non-science venues. And yet you are somebody who has been in both worlds. You were studying religion and how to be in that world, and then you studied biology I mean, you've been very thickly in both worlds. I have, yes. I wasn't raised religious, but um, I became a evangelical born-again Christian in high school, and I went, uh, was in that throughout college and went to a Christian college, Pepperdine University. And, you know, I was into it until I got to graduate school and, and uh, really started to study, you know, the major issues and problems and arguments on all sides, and I came out the other end as a non-believer. So really my life's work, in a sense, is trying to make sense of a naturalistic worldview, you know, science and pseudoscience, science and religion, science and God, and now, you know, with my new book, Science and Morality. So, you know, what, you know, because the question always is, is if you're not, a, if you don't believe in God, then where do you get your morals? Why should you be good? You know, how can you say things are getting better if, you know, if, if, um, if the, 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 the secular worldview is dominant? And uh, so that, that's what I tried to provide an answer for in my book. In your book, The Moral Arc, it's, it's a new book, and I have to admit on this that we almost threw it out at our science show here at KGNU because we get so many books into the science show from intelligent design people and creationists saying we have scientific proof that the earth is only 5,000 years old. And once we saw the title moral in the book, we thought, uh-oh, this might be another one. <laughs> but then there were people like Jared Diamond and Stephen Pinsker and Richard Dawkins giving recommendations for this book. And we looked at each other and said, those people are scientists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dawkins is not likely to endorse an intelligent design book. <laughs> uh, but in fact, I, I claim that, um, you know, there is an evolutionary basis to morality, that we all evolved a sense of right and wrong, a sense of guilt when you uh, harm somebody, a sense of anger and injustice and the desire for revenge when somebody harms you, uh, jealousy if you feel like you've been cuckold, um, you know, embarrassment. You know, these are all moral emotions that evolved, and you can even see them in in primates. The great apes and many monkey species, like capuchins, uh, are notorious for showing the similar kinds of moral emotions that we have. So, I'm claiming that, like language, everybody is born with the capacity to learn morality, and which language or which morality you learn depends on where you were raised you know, which part of the world you were raised in. And, uh, but, but what I'm after here is why should we feel guilty about anything or feel angry about anything? Why should we have a sense of justice in the first place? And the answer is because we're a social primate species and we need to get along with one another. We need to have a sense of right and wrong. We need to have a sense of community and, and so forth. And all that's built in. It's hardwired. It comes with the species. So 
it's functionally useful. Absolutely functionally useful. Without it, it would just be chaos. We would be anarchy. We would not have social communities. We wouldn't have civil societies. Uh, and none of this would exist without that moral sense. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's an objective morality, by which I mean um, it's not totally relative. It's not totally culture-bound. You know, there's a universal human nature for morality that's part of our species. It does seem that it's hardwired into us. And you specifically chose the title of this book, though, for a very special reason that has to do with Martin Luther King. Yes, um, Dr. King's famous march from Selma to Montgomery ended with his uh, How Long, Not Long speech. And uh, one of his uh, tropes in there was that, uh, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Dr. King got that phrase from a 19th century abolitionist preacher named Theodore Parker, who in 1853 first observed that, you know, my eye sees but little ways, but when it comes to the moral universe, I think it bends towards, the arc bends towards justice. And so it's true, you know, religion part, certainly participates in bending the moral arc, but usually, as I show in the book, usually after an embarrassingly long lag time, you know, the abolition of slavery was primarily driven by intellectual ideas from the Enlightenment, the idea that all people should be treated equally under the law, that people should never be treated as a means to an end, but an end in and of themselves. You know, those ideas come from John Locke and Immanuel Kant and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. These were not religious people. These were secularists who were promoting Enlightenment ideas that transcend any particular religious beliefs. <clears throat> and so what's happened with religions, modern religions like uh, Judaism and Christianity, is they've incorporated those ideas into their worldview, but you won't find those ideas in the Bible. You know, the creator of the universe who wrote this book failed to mention that, you know, slavery is a bad idea. Um, and that people should be treated equally and that sort of thing. That comes from the Enlightenment. Although you're mentioning some philosophers as part of what can drive what we call moral decisions, you also mention many ways that empirically, just from a scientific analysis, it ends up that being moral is more useful to people in society because it is more effective. That's right. Why should we be nice to other people? Well, one answer is so that they'll be nice to you when you need help. Now, that sounds kind of cold and calculating. I'm only being nice to you because I hope, I hope I get something in return. But, in fact, you can't just pretend to be a nice person because, you know, people that are psychopathic, um, you know, they get, they get found out. People that are just pretending and faking to be nice in order to exploit others, they're called free riders in, in, the, in the trade, um, they're found out. You, you actually have to really believe it and live it and, and be a moral person for other people to really believe it. And, and treat you equally that way. So I'm claiming we evolved this deeper sense of morality. It, it, it's really in there. We really do feel good about helping other people. And we really do feel angry about punishing those who wrong us or our, our loved ones or our fellow group members. And those are deep, real emotions. And they have very practical uses. I mean, I mean even on the you know, so-called dark side, you know, why, why people would be nasty to each other or, or commit violence. If you're subject to a free rider or a bully, who will take advantage of you, you have to fight back. You have to be willing to, you know, to say, no, stop. You can't take advantage of me that way. And in fact, most rights revolutions are driven that way from the bottom up by the oppressed group saying, that's enough. Well, Michael Shermer, when you talk about oppressed groups, you have some interesting examples in your book, The Moral Arc, about how 
standing up to someone doesn't necessarily mean beating them up. In this day and age, there's data that shows that nonviolent protests in the end have more weight behind them and more effectiveness than violent protests or, or war. That's right. I have a data set in my book from Erica Chenoweth on who tracked she's a political scientist and tracked every um, violent or nonviolent attempt at political change over the last three quarters of a century and really showed that the the most successful ones were the nonviolent ones. It just, it doesn't really pay to be violent. It, it just doesn't pay off. You can't have, not as many people will support you. The community at large will, will reject violence in the long run. Um, and, and she points out that no terrorist organization has ever overturned a state and established its own government. And ISIS is not a, an exception because they, they can call themselves a state, but they're not. And in any case, they haven't overturned any states. They're just terrorists. But you know, and even so, with that there's just there's just nothing to that. It doesn't it doesn't work. Do you just speculate some on that? That when somebody is specializing in being a terrorist, they're training themselves to be disruptive, whereas somebody who's training themselves for nonviolent protests is training themselves to be an organizer. <laughs> Correct. Exactly right. That's well said. Yes. Yesterday I was in Washington D.C. on my book tour and. You know, it was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and there were protesters all over the place, pro-life, pro-choice, going at it. But when I say going at it, you know, there were no guns, bombs, fists, nothing. They they just had signs, and and they were even pretty nice about it. You know, just sort of, they weren't yelling and screaming at each other in anger. They were just sort of you know talking to each other and and shouting out their little platitudes and sayings and things that they stood for. But you know, there was no violence. And, you know, that's that's what's happened. Judaism and Christianity went through the Enlightenment and became far less violent. I mean, they used to be violent religions in the Middle Ages and before, but not anymore. So one of the things I'm exploring here is that Islam didn't really go through the Enlightenment like Christianity and Judaism did. And so that third of the three great monotheistic religions um, still has yet to be, um, let's say, enlightened in that sense. <laughs> I don't mean, you know, most Muslims, most Muslims in the West, of course, do not commit violence, but, but, you know, radicalized ones in the East, Middle East, um, they do because they haven't, they haven't gone through that enlightenment and realized that that is a failed strategy for bringing about social change. Well, Michael Shermer, are you talking as a scientist right now or as somebody who's a bit more fond of Christianity? And the reason I'm asking that is because if you look at radical Christian groups or radical groups from the Jewish culture, they can be pretty nasty, too. <laughs> yeah. When was the last abortion clinic bombing? That was like back in the early 90s, I think. You know, I mean, yes, of course, there's a few wingnuts out there living in Idaho or something that, you know, carry their guns and they're ready for the apocalypse to come, the end of the world, or, you know, like at Waco or something like that. But th those are so rare. I mean, you know, I don't lay awake worried about that at all. And, and I don't think you do either. And yes, there are a few Jewish extremists, you know, who think violence is the way to go against Arabs or, or Palestinians or whatever. But again, they're the exception to the rule. And, uh, you know, Islam, that you know, according to the Pew studies that were just conducted a few months ago uh, or last year, uh, you know, in many portions of the world, huge percentages, more than half, sometimes three quarters of Muslims believe that Sharia law should replace the law of the land. And Sharia law includes things like execution for leaving the religion or stoning to death women who are adulterous. These were things that were part of Christianity many centuries ago, but that religion has evolved away from this. Whereas you're saying that in Islam, there's still leaders 
who tell everybody, do this. Correct. That's right. So what happened with Christianity is, is uh, you had uh, criminal reformers like uh, Jeremy Bentham and uh, Cesarea Beccaria who said, uh, you know, corporal punishment, the death penalty. You know, there was a death penalty for over 220 different crimes in England, uh, you know, in the 1600s. I mean, you know, just like shoplifting, death penalty, insulting the king, death penalty. You know, so these reformers said, you know what, this doesn't work. You know, the, 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 there's people pickpocketing at the, at the execution. You know, people are not, if we want to improve society, we have to have a rational uh, legal justice system, and the death penalty doesn't work. By the way, I'm tracking the death penalty will be extinct by 2025 to 2030 uh, everywhere, including in the United States. It's on its way out. Most people on death row die of old age and are not executed now. So, you know, even even that's on its way out. In a way, your book was rather optimistic for being a skeptic. <laughs> well, skeptics are not pessimists. Skeptics are just scientists. Scientists are not necessarily pe pessimistic. We just want to know what's true. Um, I, I don't favor Christianity over Islam or anything like that. I just want to know how can we reduce violence. I don't care what you know what the cause is or who. You know, I don't have any favorite dogs in this fight or favorites in this game. Uh, the, just just the empirical question: How can we get people to stop killing each other? And so to do that, you have to identify the cause. And in this particular case, you know, religious terrorism, it's, it's not religious terrorism that's the problem. Because as I said, Jews and Christians really are not an existential threat in this regard. It's Islam. It's certain sects and members of Islam, and not a trivial number, who are willing to commit violence. And it's them we have to change, starting with the moderate Muslims getting them to change. And so you would encourage moderate Muslims to use their moral authority to say to their brethren, hey guys, Stop. get into the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as I'm hearing you talking, there's this fine line between being a scientist and also being a moral person. You say we have to stop the violence. Well, you, in your book, The Moral Arc, you talk about leaders who say sometimes for some challenges, it's worth it to kill millions of people because for them, the moral arc is to say, if you can prevail, it's worth it to kill millions of people. Yeah, this is the problem of, of groupthink, that is, that is basing your morality on what's good for the group or what's good for the greatest number. This is why I'm not a utilitarian. You know, utilitarians believe the greatest good for the greatest number. The problem with that is that people are willing to sacrifice the few for the many. There's a famous thought experiment called the trolley problem, where there's a trolley hurtling down the track. It's about to kill the five workers on the track. And you standing there at the switch can flip the switch and send the trolley down this side track where it will kill one worker. Now, mind you, mysteriously, these workers can't hear the trolley coming and get up and run or anything like that. They're going to die. Would you flip the switch? Well, almost everybody says they would. Yes, I would flip the switch. I would, I would kill the one to save the five. It, it's a, it's a, it seems like a rational calculation. But the problem with that is you can easily ratchet up from it's okay to kill one million to save five million or kill 10 million to save 50 million. And before you know it, you have a, a genocide. And, um, and, and it's easy to rationalize why you know, group X is bad for our group. You know, they're harmful. The Jews are going to corrupt our society or the blacks or whatever. You know, that's what and historically what people have done. And so I, I ground my moral system in the individual. It's the individual that counts. It's the individual that suffers, not the group. Even civil rights like the right to vote. 
Races don't vote. African-Americans don't vote. It's an individual African-American who votes, or women don't vote. An individual woman votes. So, and, and those rights in the Bill of Rights, they're to protect individuals from being discriminated against as a member of a group, not to protect the group. It's to help individuals. Those are certainly interesting ideas and, and uh, passionately stated. What would you do in the trolley experiment yourself? <laughs> well, I would look for a way to get all the workers off the track. <laughs> so you would think outside the box, or you would look, what if the one person on the other track is your friend? That's right. You know, there's lots of modifications of this. You know, what if it's your spouse or your best friend? and Or, you know, there's another one uh, where you're standing on a bridge over the track, and you can hurl a guy next to you off the bridge, and he hits the track and stops the trolley. Would you do that? This changes things. Most people say they would not uh, shove the guy off the the, the bridge onto the tracks. And the reason appears to be we have a visceral sense of actually physically grabbing somebody and harming them is much harder to do. This is why the Nazis made the transition from, uh, you know, shooting at close range to shooting uh, victims at, at far range and then to, to shifting to gas vans and then eventually gas chambers. You know, they didn't start with, you know, gassing Jews in, in gas chambers at Auschwitz. That, that, that was the end of the process. And, and the reason for that is because, too many of the soldiers, the SS guards themselves, uh, failed to participate. They quit. They wouldn't. They, they didn't want to participate, and because uh, it made them physically ill. So we we have a propensity not to want to do that. Psychopaths and sadists aside, you recommend that for people that you think that the arc of history, the arc of our progress in science and other places, is better if we maintain that sense of individual connection to our cause and effect. And I, I want to think about that in the topic of two different forms of weapons. One is drones, and the other is weapons of mass destruction, specifically nuclear weapons. Which do you want to talk about first? Well, drones, I think, uh, you know, President Obama has been hammered on this, but really it is a, a form of moral progress. Um, I mean, we haven't eliminated war yet, uh, but if you're going to kill people, what's better? A, a targeted drone in which a couple or a few bystanders are killed or harmed versus carpet bombing like in the Second World War, you know, which, which you just blanket carpet, you know, the entire city and hope you get – you know, the arms munitions factory or something like that. So over time, I mean, the number of deaths that have piled up has gone way down. You can compare, I mean, World War II to Vietnam was a huge improvement, but Vietnam, you know, 50,000. Now we're talking about a few thousand that, that we're not even happy about. You mean collateral damage? Collateral damage, yeah. So it's gotten much better. You don't equate that to the Nazis who decided to distance the people who were killing from the people being killed. You don't think of that side of drones as much as you think of the statistics of how much fewer people are killed. That sounds a little bit like the trolley experiment to me. No, I don't, I don't think President Obama and his administration have used drones because American soldiers are not willing to kill, say, Iraqis up close. Uh, that's not it at all. They just want to target and get the right person and, and limit the amount of collateral damage, including to American soldiers, but also to the bystanders. Uh, I think it's intended that, you know, in sort of a just war theory, if we have to go to war, if we have to do something and, and you know, the democratic process says, OK, you can do this, uh, uh, that, that's another debate. But but if you're going to do it, then do it right. Do it, you know, with minimal collateral damage. So that to that extent, I think it, it is moral improvement. And so the tool you think may be a, a useful tool as long as it's applied in a judicious way, in a moral way. That's right. Yep. 
Now, how about this nuclear weapons? You are a little scared of them, but you see that they have some utility. Well, first of all, mutual assured destruction has worked so far. I mean, the the only uh, nuclear weapons ever exploded uh, in war was 1945 by us, and, and that's the last time it's happened. But you see, Michael Shermer, I think you're the one who made that humorous statement that you know people who would say, I am trying to live forever, and so far it's worked. That's right. Yes, it's a, it's a fair point. Uh, it's not impossible for a you know a rogue terrorist group to get you know fissile materials and build a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, and our security agencies are monitoring that fairly closely. Um, and so, yes, of course, we have to do that. But but it's it's still not very likely compared to you know say hijacking a plane or or just you know rogue attacks like on Charlie Hebdo. Those are the kinds of things we should be focused on more. And as I point out in the book, you know, the, the nuclear weapons are, are are in big decline. There was, you know, from a peak of about 70,000 in the 1980s to, you know, less than 10,000 now, and really only about 4,000 nuclear weapons are active, ready to go on, you know, the Soviet and the Russian and American side. The numbers are, have gone way down. They're still too high. If we can get below 1,000 total, it's it's even in a nuclear exchange, it's unlikely we would get a nuclear winter or you know catastrophic civilization ending type uh, consequences. So uh, you know we're on our way there again. But I think by 2030 we'll be down um, down below that thousand mark at the rate we're going. Your hope is that we get down below a level where we would destroy the world four times over. That, that's correct. Yes. And instead, keep enough nuclear weapons so that if there is a rogue state, there's a real and tangible response where you could basically leave them nothing but cinders. It, that's right. But the real use of nuclear weapons is deterrence. No one wants to use them, you know, hopefully. <laughs> you know, the whole point is to keep others from using them. It's a game theory thing. It's, you know, it's like a it's like a psychological game that, that states are playing. And so far, so good. I know it could change. Uh, but But the taboo from using nuclear weapons is now starting to shift to owning nuclear weapons. And as I point out in the book, more states have abandoned uh, a nuclear weapons program than have started and completed it. And that was an interesting point because in a way it's a moral argument, but it's also one with a lot of consequences behind it, that these states have been informed that if they begin the process then they're actually more vulnerable to being attacked. That's right, yes. It, it's not only expensive to operate a nuclear program, first develop it and get it started and keep it going. I mean, we, we spend a lot of money. Uh, most states can't afford it, and and and, and they shift. During, there's a critical, super-sensitive period of starting up a program and getting it to completion where other states around you are going to get very nervous about that and you're putting yourself you're making yourself more vulnerable at that time it's actually safer not to have nuclear weapons that's what you say and you say that it's also safer to once you have them announce it yes that's right i mean the whole point of a doomsday machine is to tell everybody you have it <laughs> like from dr strangelove you know uh you know the whole point of having nuclear weapons is to brag about it how did north korea sneak itself into being a nuclear power without having to go through the risky time period of developing? How did they sneak into becoming somebody who's safe again? 
Well, if you have enough money in a closed society and you just hire a nun amongst your you know experts, and you know they're they're a big enough state to be able to do that. Um, but again, they don't have the deli- at the moment anyway. They don't have the delivery mechanisms to, you know, bother us. But you know, it's not impossible they could get there. So again, that's why we have to be vigilant. I say keep. A- but but in the long run, I'd rather do with North Korea what we're doing with Cuba. You know, just just open those borders up if possible. That's not going to happen under Kim Il Yun, but uh, but in the long run, that would be better. Make make those people free and wealthy, and they won't want nuclear weapons. It's too expensive. It's a waste of money. How about the issues of climate change and the rights of animals? In your moral arc, you mentioned that those are priorities. Are you optimistic in those areas? Well, animal rights is certainly happening already, and you know, I start with Jeremy Bentham's argument that it's not can they think or use tools or, 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 or be as intelligent as us, it's can they feel, can they suffer, can they have experience pain? And animals can. Unquestionably, all cognitive psychologists who study animal behavior and animal cognition agree they can suffer just like we do. They have their, their brain structures that experience pain and anxiety and suffering are exactly like ours. So, and that makes sense, of course, because we we all evolved from common ancestors. Um, and so, from that, you just build, uh, you know, a moral consideration for decreasing the suffering of animals, not giving them rights. And we, you know, we're going to let chimpanzees vote. I'm not talking about that. I mean, just just treatment, just humane treatment for animals. And and there's a lot of progress there. I mean, chimpanzees. The NS, um, the National Science Foundation just ended its uh, program of funding scientific research using chimpanzees. You can't use them anymore. They're retiring all the ones currently in use to a uh, sort of chimpanzee retirement community. <laughs> uh, so that's you know that's moral progress. And how about and how we treat animals that we eat? Yeah, there I'm. I'm kind of on board with Temple Grandin that you know we're not likely to end meat eating anytime soon. Uh, so if we're going to eat meat, we might as well try to at least uh, treat them humanely while they're alive. You know, eventually, I guess it would be good. You know, if we all if we shifted from uh, factory farms to the uh, little family farms, poly farms, so to speak, uh, and and there are there are quite a few of those now. Uh, not enough to feed seven billion people, but in the long run, you know, maybe by twenty one hundred to twenty two hundred, get the population of the earth back down to about one or two billion, and then have these small farms far more. Um, efficient at supplying enough food for a billion or two billion people and have more food selections that are not meat. I, I think that's where we're going. I don't think that rights revolution is going to happen, happen anytime soon. You know, the, 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 the polls on vegetarianism and veganism, you know, it's still in the single-digit numbers in the West. So, you know, we have a long ways to go on that one. I noticed that in that commentary, you snuck in the idea that the important thing from a moral perspective is to reduce the population of the earth. Yeah, ultimately that would be good. You know, not through any, uh, you know, top-down draconian means that deprives people of their rights for reproduction. But, you know, we know from studies that if you educate people and give them access to birth control, their family size goes down. They want they want fewer children. And, and so ultimately prosperity, education, freedom, access to reproduction – technologies. that That's the solution. Well, thank you for all of those explanations. I, I still have the strong sense that you may be a skeptical scientist, but you sure sound optimistic. I am optimistic. <laughs> Very hopeful. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye.